where the haunting mists of the Amazon basin meet the snow-capped giants of the Ecuadorian Andes. Huge mountain waterfalls feed down into brutally unnavigable rapids, and the rainforest becomes so thick and dense with trees and life that it's impassable. For most people, anyway. But there's more than life in this place. This region is rich in gold, and in 1527 CE, Incan Emperor Uena Capec led his army to get that gold and subjugate the people within it. But these people weren't up for being subjugated. The resistance the Incas faced was so fierce, so violent, and so absolutely unrelenting that Uena Capec did the most unthinkable of things for an emperor to do. He retreated. And just to make the relentless onslaught stop, he had to hastily placate the people he had intended to conquer with gifts as he retreated all the way back home. Huayna Capex swore revenge, but the Incas never came back after that. But like I said, the region was incredibly rich in gold, and gold was what Spain, the next empire to face these people, wanted more than anything. But that didn't matter, because to get that gold, they had to go through the Hivero. In 1550, Captain Hernando de Benevente wrote to the royal Spanish court, quote, I say truly to your highness that these people are the most insolent that I have seen in all the time I have traveled to the Indies and engaged in their conquest, unquote. Some of the Hivero, those on the outskirts of the interior, engaged in trade and peaceful negotiations with the Spanish. But in 1599, for the coronation of Philip III of Spain, the governor of Lagraño decided that for such a special occasion, he would implement the heaviest taxation for gold the region had ever seen. And that would be the last stupid thing he ever did. Let's find out what happened and how the Hivero became the only tribe in history to revolt against the Spanish Empire and win, never to be subjugated again. Oh, and I'm also going to tell you how to make a shrunken head. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Since the Western world has known about the people I'll be talking about in this episode, which as far as we know began with the onslaught of the Spanish into their territory in 1549, they have been known as the Hivero, a term traditionally used to describe a collection of five different tribes who all speak a version of the same language. But since their discovery, the word Hivero has become somewhat of a pejorative term in Ecuador, used to encourage stereotypes of savagery and an uncivilized people. The Hivero alive today prefer to be called the Shuar, which literally means people, and out of respect for them, that's what I'll be calling them for the rest of this series. Now, the Shuar are still around today, and the Shuar Federation, which was organized in 1964, is the largest federation of Amazonian natives out there. In this episode, I'll specifically be discussing the ancestors of today's Shuar, starting as far back as the archaeological record goes, which is around 2,500 years ago. One of the most fascinating things about the Shuar is that until extremely recently, 
We're talking the 1950s. Their culture was largely untouched by Western influences. The late great anthropologist Michael J. Harner, whose ethnography on the Schwar is the primary source I used for my research, spent 14 months with the interior Schwar from 1956 to 57. The people hosting him had machetes and muskets, did some trading here and there, but were largely uncontacted from the encroaching west, like the Schwar of the more accessible, less rugged terrain of the Ecuadorian Amazon. By the time Harner returned to that same area in the 1960s, that had already started to irreversibly change, and I'll discuss how that happened and why and what that means for the Schwar of today at the end of the series. But before I begin, I want to say that it became pretty clear to me very quickly when I started delving into this research that I was going to need to be extremely careful of how I presented the information I'm going to give you. The Schwar have overcome a lot in veering away from the stereotypes historically associated with them. Some of the things I'm going to tell you are going to seem so far out there that it's probably going to blow your mind. It did mine. I've had shrunken heads and invisible shaman darts and tree sloths and ayahuasca on the brain for weeks now. It is not my intention to further any stereotypes of violence, savagery, or uncivilization in any way. It is my intention to present a fascinating culture to you that has existed for thousands of years despite multiple attempted conquests and encroachments that caused similar cultures to be wiped out centuries sooner. And I hope to pull that off in the most respectful way possible. The Shuar were fierce, and they were not going to be subjugated by anyone. Not the Incan Empire, not the Spanish, not the colonizers that came after. Their methods for staying free were often violent, and when they weren't fighting outside influences, they were often engaged in warfare with one another, making shrunken heads, what they called sansas, from their slain enemies into the size of oranges. One of the most famous Shuar sayings is, I was born to die fighting. And most did. The rate of violent death among Shuar males was almost 60%, and boys generally joined in killing raids by the age of 6 to 8 years old. When I was 6, I was eating candy cigarettes and rotting my brain with my Sega Genesis every night and thinking about what superpowers I wish I had. Now I rot my brain with my PS4 and think about what superpowers I wish I had. But I digress. Getting back to this whole idea of civilization, I think the late anthropologist Stephen Lee Rubenstein put it best when he said, quote, that Schwar have killed people to make powerful objects, whereas we have made powerful objects to kill people, does not sustain any meaningful distinction between savage and the civilized. The last time a Schwar actually made its Sansa may well have been as long ago as the last time the United States dropped an atomic bomb on another country, unquote. Now that's something to think about. And with all that in mind, let's head into the deepest, darkest, and most untouched depths of the Amazon and meet the ancient, the unstoppable, the untouchable, the unconquerable Schwar. The earliest evidence we have for peoples living in the Schwar interior sandwiched between the Andes and some pretty heinous river rapids comes from ceramic and charcoal deposits in the Rio Upano Valley dated to around 609 BCE, plus or minus 440 years, so from 2500-ish years ago. 
The pottery styles found by archaeologists were different enough from what the Shuar were using later, and different enough from those found at sites inhabited in succeeding centuries, to suggest that the first peoples in the interior may not have been the direct antecedents of the Shuar per se, but we're not conclusively sure, at least not yet. So the Shuar may have conquered or pushed out whoever was there previously, or they could have moved in after someone else moved out, or they could have integrated, or they could have been first. However they got there, they stayed when they did, and they've been there for centuries now, because we know they were there by the 1500s, and were already firmly established and settled within the interior. One of the singularly most interesting things about the Shuar was their remarkable ability to put aside intertribal feuds in order to combat greater foes like the Spanish and the Incas. This is even more extraordinary when you consider the intertribal feuding that characterized everything from their spiritual beliefs to their everyday social structures. In the article, The Science of Shrinking Human Heads, Tribal Warfare and Revenge Among the South American Hivero Shuar by Yandial, Hughes, Arian, Marshall, and Levy from UC San Diego, I'm sure I mispronounced all those names. They describe the daily inculcation of young boys, saying, quote, from the age of approximately six years onward, he is daily indoctrined into recitation of feuds his family is engaged in, along with a catalog of the misfortunes that will befall the family if they fail to exact revenge." Unquote. So not only is an individual taught that they're duty-bound to take violently fatal revenge on a specific list of people from early childhood, they're taught that if they don't exact that revenge, horrible misfortunes will befall everyone they know and love. That's a pretty tall order. It's like Arya from Game of Thrones, but not fun and super real. And to be able to put that aside, that burned in your brain sense of warfare and vengeance to work with your enemies who you're indoctrinated from birth to hate and kill in order to unify and combat a larger enemy that's impressive. And this was all organized at individual family levels. The Shuar had no government, no official tribal leadership of any kind, just independent households, sometimes miles apart, with an average of nine people or so per dwelling. This ability to put their ingrained obligations of vengeance aside is probably why the Shuar succeeded in defeating all attempts at colonialization when so many other colonized peoples fell victim to that tried-and-true divide-and-conquer strategy. If they hadn't had this ability, they'd be nothing but a footnote in the diary of a conquistador, lost to time. Or worse, they'd have been annihilated much earlier by the Incas, and we would never have even known they existed at all. Makes you wonder how many groups of people have lived and died and come and gone without anyone ever knowing. Think about it. We saw how well Divide and Conquer worked when Caesar marched Roman legions into Celtic Gaul, totally illegally, by the way, but that's for another episode. We saw it again with the English, then American colonizers in North America, with Spanish colonizers in South and Central America, with Viking raiders in Northern Europe, etc., etc., as far back as we can go. We as humans are pretty bad at forgetting our differences and letting go of old grudges, and historically, that's been one of our biggest weaknesses. Capitalizing on that has been the easiest way to break us down. Conquerors have used the intertribal feuds of populations everywhere to further their own interests since time immemorial because, well, it tends to work very efficiently. But it didn't work with the Shuar. 
1549, a guy named Hernando de Benevente from Spain led an expedition by following the Rio Upano down from the eastern slopes of the Andes. When the Rio Upano joined the Rio Paute, he found the people he ended up calling the Hibero and almost immediately retreated back to the Ecuadorian highlands. We don't know exactly what this retreat entailed, but we can safely assume the Spanish were well equipped for the time. They had armor, helmets, steel swords about three feet long and sharpened on both sides. If they had horses, then they were equipped with lances too. These were long wooden spears with steel or iron points on the ends and could be absolutely devastating to unarmored native foot soldiers. They probably had crossbows too, and maybe even something called a harquebus, a sort of early musket you fired from the shoulder or from a stationary stand. These were cumbersome, heavy, and you had to keep a wick lit while also trying not to explode yourself, and it could only fire one shot at a time, which was pretty inefficient. But they were scary, and a lot of natives were afraid of these weapons as they thought the Spanish were capable of harnessing thunder. We can assume the Schwar were not so impressed. So your average Spanish soldier was equipped with the best armor in the world, being encased in steel armor from head to toe that most weapons would just bounce off of. And they had the best, most efficient killing devices of the day. Oh, and they had shields, too, just in case the best weapons and most impenetrable armor the world had ever seen wouldn't do. The Schwar had wooden spears, blowguns, and no armor. That was it. And Hernando de Benevente retreated, just like the Incan emperor before him. Not too long after that, the Viceroy of Peru sent in a delegation with colonists and soldiers, but this time, they set up some trade networks with some of the less hostile groups in the area and immediately started exploiting them. And there was so much gold. And in 1552, the Spanish set up two different locations which they described as cities, one called Lagraño, the other Sevilla del Oro. And although some Schwar were cooperative, many were still hostile and we know it was a huge problem for the Spanish because in 1582, Juan Alderete wrote from somewhere in the middle Rio Upano Valley, quote, They, the Hivero, are a very warlike people and have killed a great number of Spaniards and are killing them every day. It is a very rough land, having many rivers and canyons, all of which in general have gold in such quantity that the Spaniards are obliged to forget the danger and try to subject them for the profits which they can obtain and which the land promises, unquote. I can't think of anything I'd want so much that I'd be okay living in a place where people were murdered every single day outside my door. Maybe coffee, though. This kept going on while the Spaniards kept demanding more and more tribute in gold dust until 1599 when we saw the governor of Lograño do that famously stupid thing. He proclaimed an edict imposing a large tax on both the Spanish colonists and the natives to send as a gift to the new King Philip III. Everybody hated this, and the Spanish began revolting along with the natives. One of the more passive-aggressive revolutionary acts was throwing parties. For the coronation, all the communities threw huge parties to celebrate, and instead of giving the governor a bunch of gold to send to the king as a gift just to make himself look good, they spent a ton of it on the celebrations. That's pretty creative. The governor quickly realized what was going on and that everyone was revolting, so he told the Spanish that the tax was voluntary. 
but that's not what he told the natives. So the Spanish calmed down, and the Shuar began planning a revolution, one that would free them from the yoke of the Spanish forever. Most Shuar wanted to fight right then, but a man named Karupsa, or Big Frog, told everyone they should hold their forces until the optimal time for a revolution presented itself. He talked them into recognizing him as their leader and liberator, which was unheard of in the single-family Shuar culture. And his first rule was, you couldn't talk about the revolution. Everyone was sworn to secrecy. The second thing he told them was to go find all the gold they could, even more than had been taxed from them by the governor, which was apparently a lot. Then he sent emissaries to surrounding groups of Shuar because his plan was to wipe out all the Spaniards, all the Spaniards, in a single day. And no one talked. Thousands of people kept that a secret. Can you even imagine just your family or a group of your friends planning anything? literally anything, and keeping it a secret? I can't. But it worked, and Big Frog learned that the governor was going to arrive back in town from his tax collection campaign in just a few days. So that was where he was going to go with a third of the Schwar army. He designated two of his friends, each to travel further out with warriors to surrounding communities. The first was the city of Sevilla del Oro, and the other, the town of Huamboya. So Big Frog marches in secret to Lagrano, where the governor is, without anyone tipping him off to any of it. And at midnight, when the Spanish were sleeping, Big Frog and 20,000 Shuar warriors attacked. They brutally killed almost everyone. It was bad. I'll save you the brutal details, but the children, men, and elderly were all killed immediately, with most of the women being kept captive. During the heat of the battle, Big Frog finds the governor in his home, takes him captive, and promptly kills everyone else in the house. Now, Big Frog brings in all that gold he had amassed. He had instructed the other Shuar to bring him all they could find, and they did. And he also brought the tools he would need to melt it. They stripped the governor completely naked and told him that now he was to receive that tax of gold he had ordered prepared. If you're eating lunch right now, just know this next part's gross. They bound his feet and hands and held him so he couldn't move. Then they brought in the gold. They melted it, and swallow by swallow, they forced it down his throat with a bone in small enough increments that he couldn't die right away. They wanted him to suffer. They wanted to drag it out. They jeered at him and told him they wanted to see if he'd finally had enough gold. After that, his stomach burst. More recent scholars know now that the execution method of pouring hot liquefied metals down into someone's throat, because apparently that's a thing, causes them to die from the effects of steam and internal thermal injury to the airways. So maybe he was dead before his guts exploded with molten gold because his lungs had already been melted by it. Either way, that's not how I'd want to go. Meanwhile, in the other two cities, someone finally snitched. The Macas, another Ecuadorian tribe, had been going along with the Shuar and their revolution because they were too afraid of them not to. 
but they warned the Spanish about the impending attack, so everyone fled to Sevilla del Oro, where the Spanish quickly fortified it with troops and crammed everyone who wasn't fighting, including the children, into a barricaded church. The two-thirds of the Shuar army assigned to attack Sevilla del Oro and Huamboya while Big Frog was sacking Lagraño hadn't done so yet, because the Maka guides that were supposed to lead them to the other two cities never showed. The Makas had all fled to Sevilla del Oro and had helped fortify the city along with the Spanish. Big Frog and the rest of the Shuar were infuriated to hear of the Maka's betrayal, and now the Shuar were more interested in getting vengeance on the Makas than they were the Spanish, but luckily for them, both of their enemies were in the same place, so they figured they might as well just kill everybody. The Shuar surrounded the city at dawn. They threw themselves into the fray, charging with fierce, terrifying relentlessness. They were halted for a while from gunfire, but the more time passed, the less frequent the gunshots became, and they knew that meant the Spanish were almost out of gunpowder. And they just kept attacking in relentless wave after wave until they finally pierced the trenches and took the city. They burned everything. Then, for reasons totally unknown, they just left. Thousands were dead. Most accounts put the slaughtered somewhere over 20,000. But the Shuar did what they came to do, and satisfied that their point had been made, just walked away. And everyone left them alone after that. Now, I know this whole thing seems violent and ferocious, and the Shuar have had centuries of people discussing how barbaric this revolt was, but in response to that, I want to put the Spanish conquistadors into some context, because we have a document that survives today called the Spanish Requirement. This was written in 1513 and was read aloud to the native populations of the Americas. When Pizarro met the last Incan emperor, Atahualpa, who came to meet him unarmed in 1531, 68 years before the Shuar revolt, he had the Spanish Requirement read to the emperor. It starts out claiming that the Spanish monarchy is divinely ordained from a religion the Incas didn't believe in, and that they were to immediately defer all power to the Spanish crown, who were given the divine right to subjugate them. The last paragraph of the Spanish requirement says exactly this, quote, If you do not do this, and maliciously delay in it, I certify to you that, with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country, and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can, and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highnesses. We shall take you and your wives and your children, and shall make slaves of them, and as such shall sell and dispose of them as their highnesses may command. And we shall take away your goods, and shall do you all the mischief and damage that we can, as to vassals who do not obey and refuse to receive their lord and resist and contradict him. And we protest that the deaths and losses which shall accrue from this are your fault, and not that of their highnesses or ours, nor of these cavaliers who come with us. And that we have said this to you and made this requisition, we request the notoriety here present to give us his testimony in writing, and we ask the rest who are present that they should be witness of this requisition." Unquote. Atahualpa listened to this, heard that his empire, centuries old, was being demanded by a country he had never heard of, 
justified by a religion he didn't believe in, and that his people were now supposedly owned by two royal douchebags an ocean away that would never even bother setting foot in his empire, just because they felt entitled to it. They demanded he give them his empire, and Atahualpa, the son of Huayna Capec, refused, as anyone would. Pizarro killed the retinue, which consisted of thousands of confused and unarmed people who had been told this was to be a peaceful meeting. Pizarro arrested the Incan emperor and demanded that 24 tons of gold be brought to him as a ransom. This is still the largest ransom ever demanded in all of human history. And they paid it. And after the ransom was paid in full, Pizarro had Atahualpa executed anyway. Atahualpa was told he would be burned alive, something that completely went against his own beliefs, as he knew if this were to happen, his body could not be mummified. He was told that if he converted to Christianity before his death, the Spanish would strangle him instead. Not wanting his body to be burned, Atahualpa pretended to convert to save it, then was strangled until he died. Now, which event seems a little more savage to you? I'm not saying murder or massacres are ever justified, because they're not. But savagery begets savagery, cruelty begets cruelty, and hate begets hate. If you don't believe me, go onto literally any social media outlet and scroll for about five minutes. I bet you'll find at least one great example. Say some civilization you had never heard of came and invaded your country right now. Then they told you that everything you believe is something you are by law not allowed to believe anymore, that your family was owned by someone else, and if you didn't do everything they told you to do exactly as they told you to do it, your whole family would be slaughtered or enslaved and have every sort of debased crime done to them, and that all of it would be your fault. What would you do to protect your family? I know this was almost 500 years ago, but the emotions are timeless. It's hard not to think that at least the Schwar's anger was justified. The next mention of any significant interactions with colonizers that I could find was in 1767, when some Schwar gave several gifts to a Spanish missionizing expedition. Included in the gifts were the skulls of the Spaniards they had killed some years earlier. The missionary's message didn't take. According to Harner, the Schwar of the 1950s had no memory of their 1599 uprising. If it weren't for the writing of the Spanish at the time, we would have no idea it ever happened. No idea that over 20,000 people died at once, or that a man had his lungs melted by molten gold until his bowels burst. There were several more attempted missionizing expeditions, and a settlement was even planned, the town of Macas. This was the only town anywhere near the Schwar. This had to be relocated several times due to attacks over the years, but eventually, sometime in the mid-1800s, the Schwar stopped fighting the Maccabeos and started trading with them. Machetes were much more efficient than stone axes, allowing huge, ancient trees to be felled in a matter of hours instead of days or weeks, and muskets were better at killing people than blowguns or spears. The first instance of trade was recounted to Harner, the story goes that some Schwar were out hunting monkeys when they ran into two strangely dressed men from Makas. The men gave them a machete and told them they'd be willing to trade for any pigs the Schwar had. They spoke a language that wasn't the same, but mirrored their own so much that it wasn't a real barrier. 
The hunters took the machete home and completely freaked out at how great it was. All they'd really had before that were stone axes, which didn't even compare to a steel machete. It's like frozen yogurt versus actual ice cream. You can pretend it's the same, but it's not. So they killed some pigs and sent two old women and two men to go trade with the Macabeos. The men got cold feet before they reached the town and waited on the trail while the two old women went ahead. These fierce warriors, killers that had brought down the yoke of two empires, hid in the woods while the two old women went ahead. The men waited for a while in the trees, and then they just left. They just left the old women and headed back to the village where everyone had assumed the two old women had been killed. But they hadn't been, and they returned with machetes, cloth, and stories of how many people there were in the town and how impossibly big the houses were. The Makas started coming around after that to trade for pig meat. One of the reasons the Shuar had pigs at all was for the ritualistic feasts they would throw after a shrunken head raid. It was the pig meat the Makabeos came for. But they saw something else at one of these feasts. Something that would explode in demand all over the Western world, urging on a killing spree that would see hundreds, if not thousands more dead than would otherwise have been in the coming years supply and demand and all that. They saw human heads, the size of a human fist, and they bought them, and they sold like wildfire. Let's take a look now at the everyday life of the Shuar. We're going to examine their way of life, their beliefs, their warfare, and how it all ties together. And it all ties together, so stay tuned and get ready. The shaman-darting, ayahuasca-drinking, life-celebrating, head-shrinking, war-raiding people of the misty Ecuadorian Amazon can't wait to meet you. There was no leadership, not really. No government, no chief, not even a collection of houses. The Shuar lived in single households headed by one man, built mostly of palm trees and thatched with same. The houses are abandoned after three to nine years when either all of the firewood in the vicinity has been used up or the patriarch of the family dies, usually because his head was lobbed off. The houses were big, 25 to 36 feet wide and 40 to 60 feet long. The Shuar often hosted parties and gatherings so a big space was necessary. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is probably a phrase they would have wholeheartedly related to. Everyone lived in the same room, which to me seems pretty awkward. When a daughter got married, her new husband moved in with the family, and everything, everything, was done with no walls for privacy. I get that the need for space and privacy is very much a culturally determined phenomenon, at least to some extent, but still. And as an introvert, having to share my only safe space with eight other people all the time with no walls would be my biggest nightmare. Each house had a doorway on the men's side and one on the women's side, and the house was usually split with the men having one half and the women the other. The beds were made of bamboo slats or sometimes were just a pile of banana leaves on the floor. A fire would be lit at the foot of each bed to warm the sleeper's feet on cold nights. I actually tried this with a little space heater at the foot of my bed after researching this, and it was completely amazing. Although I think my sleeping situation is probably a bit more comfortable than what the Schwar were used to. 
Also, I don't recommend the space heater thing because it's probably a fire hazard, so please don't burn your house down. The fires at the end of the women's beds would be used as cooking fires the next day to save them the toil of having to light new fires all the time. The doors were made of strong wood, sometimes in the form of removable wooden posts locked tightly at night by a crossbar to protect the family from raids. A second wall of palm staves was often lashed together with the inner bark of a tree by the beds to prevent gunfire from penetrating into the walls while the family slept. Horizontal logs stacked four feet high around the house served the same purpose if warfare was particularly high. Foxholes were dug into the floor to protect defenders from enemy fire and also served as a good place to protect the children when the house was under attack. Sometimes there would even be an escape tunnel leading outside to the garden. The floor was made of dirt. This was for convenience sake. The rainforest isn't a safe place to move around, even during the day. There are jaguars, anacondas, countless species of bugs, many poisonous. The Brazilian wandering spider, Google it, is the deadliest spider in the world. It's aggressive and they only come out at night. And they don't just bite once, they bite you repeatedly, injecting neurotoxin into your system. There's an anti-venom out there available today, but there wasn't then. And where the Schwar were living, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So in this darkest of places, without light, where any number of things could kill you, including your neighbors, remember that 60% murder rate? What do you do when you need to go to the bathroom at night? Do you go outside with no shoes and just hope for the best? Hope no thing or person is waiting to eat you or make a shriveled orange out of your head? No, you just go on the floor and you throw it all out in the morning. You might think that's a little gross, but put yourself in the same situation. Would you rather die in the night or just crap on the floor? You'd probably choose to crap on the floor every time. It's obvious how much warfare was a part of the everyday concerns of the Schwar. The houses were fortresses and seemed to be constructed with defense as the most important characteristic. Imagine the psychological effect living like that would have on a person, on any person. It'd be like living in Jurassic Park after all the dinosaurs escaped. Only the dinosaurs are people with guns and spears who feel honor-bound to murder you and your whole family and no one ever comes to rescue you. But the gardens sound nice. All the houses had gardens where the family produced most of its food, about 65%. Sweet manioc, a root tuber that looks like a long, stretched-out sweet potato, was grown more than anything else. You might have heard people call it cassava. It's starchy and a great source of carbohydrates. They also grew tomatoes, onions, pineapple, sugarcane, papaya, two kinds of sweet potatoes, red peppers, and a variety of other things I can't pronounce. They cultivated tobacco and cotton, and foraged for things like bananas that they could freely find in the forest. The gardens could be anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 square feet. The labor hours that go into maintaining a garden of that size had to have been insane. That's over two acres, or roughly one and a half football fields. You only had to work in the garden if you were a woman. If you were lucky enough to be a man, you'd get to go hunting all day. Hunting was where most of the Schwar's protein came from. Blowguns with poison darts were the weapon of choice for hunters. These were about seven feet long and made out of a single piece of chanta palm. 
The darts could be made in seconds by a seasoned hunter from the sturdy ribs of ivory nut palm leaves. The ability to make darts so quickly and easily is why they were preferred over the bow and arrow. Blowguns were used for most birds and monkeys, which were the primary sources of game. Bigger, non-arboreal animals like the armadillo and jaguar needed more than blowguns, and hunters would break out their Winchester 44 carbines for those. There are rabbits and deer in the jungle too, but the Schwar abstained from these. They didn't eat rabbits because they considered them vermin, and they didn't eat deer because they were considered to be the temporary embodiment of a Schwar's true soul. We'll get into that later. They would hunt tree sloths too, but when they killed one, they had to make a tsansa, or a shrunken head, out of it. This was the only non-human creature they would do this with. They believed that any creature who moved as slowly as a sloth must have been alive for a very long time, and the only way anything could live for a long time was for it to have acquired what the Schwar termed an Arutam soul. This is an acquired soul that makes the possessor of it invincible. Once a sloth loses its Arutam soul, it can be killed, but once killed, it could produce something called a Muisak soul, or an avenging soul. If a tree fell on you in the forest, it was said to be the direct result of the sloth's avenging soul. So they shrunk their heads too. By the way, a lot of people in the 20th century who thought they were buying shrunken human heads were actually buying the shrunken heads of sloths. About 80%, actually. So check your grandma's shrunken head stash. So we have hunting and gardening as the main subsistence strategies supplemented by foraging, although they also fished and kept some livestock. We've discussed their usage of pigs already, but they also had chickens and ducks. But there was one animal in particular that the Schwar valued over any other, and that was the dog. They didn't eat dogs. They kept them as pets and as useful members of the households. Dogs were excellent security alarms, and sometimes the barking of dogs would halt the raid of an approaching war party altogether as they ruined the enemy's element of surprise. The word for dog, niawe, is the same as the word used for jaguar, an animal highly revered by the Schwar. They were useful in hunting, too, and they protected the garden from other animals. Dogs were such an important part of Schwar life that when puppies were born, one of the women in the household would sleep with the litter to protect them from supernatural harm. She would also breastfeed the puppies. Let me say that again, in case you didn't hear that. She would also breastfeed the puppies. Imagine how sore you'd get. Puppies have pretty sharp teeth. A dog had its own special feeding bowl, too, and it was fed pre-chewed manioc, so a person would spend time chewing manioc and spitting it into the dog's bowl on top of tending the 100,000-square-foot garden, and they got to sleep in the bed with their owners. And the Schwar wanted their dogs to have supernatural powers, as you do, so they would give their dogs Datura, a plant in the nightshade family, which would get the dog super high and cause it to hallucinate. Can you imagine that? If I gave my dog a hallucinogen, he'd probably pee himself and jump off of a cliff. Well, Dobby would. Louis, our French bulldog, would probably just watch TV and enjoy himself. People took Datura too, plus a few other things quite often and for spiritual purposes, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but first I want to talk about beer. According to Harner's ethnography, 
The Shuar only drink water in emergencies, like when someone's canteen ran out of beer while they were hunting in the jungle. Beer was drunk all day long, beginning in the morning, which can start as early as 2 a.m. Beer was brewed from manioc, that tuber I talked about earlier, and is why that was the principal veggie grown in gardens. This drink is still popular in Ecuador and Peru today, and is known widely as chicha, or masato, although today people also use maize, or quinoa, palm fruit, even potatoes, and a variety of other fruits to make it and add flavor. It was difficult finding the average alcohol content of the manioc beer the Schwar were drinking because it depends on how long it was allowed to ferment. 2 to 6% is the estimate given in an article on Masato by Molly Bludoff and Delicato of National Geographic. Sorry, I most definitely said your name wrong, Molly. You can try some chicha today if you go to South America, but you should know two things first if you do. One, you can catch hepatitis B from it if you don't have the appropriate vaccinations. That's according to a study published by the Peruvian Journal of Experimental Medicine and Public Health. And two, it's made from human spit. Let me explain that. First, the women would peel and wash the tubers by the garden. Beer brewing was always done by women. Then the tubers would be brought into the house, cut up and boiled in a big pot. When the tubers went soft, the pot was removed from the fire to cool, and then it was all mashed and stirred to a soft consistency with a special wooden paddle, pretty much like making mashed potatoes. While this was all being stirred, the women took handfuls of the boiled tubers, chewed them up, and spat them back into the pot. This was actually the most important step in the process, because the enzymes in saliva, along with the bacteria in the mouth, are what caused and sped up the fermentation process. This is because there's very little sugar in manioc, something needed for anything to ferment, and the women's saliva would turn that starch into sugar, which was perfect for hungry yeast. And after it had been chewed and spat back out, it was transferred to a storage jar and left to ferment. Fermentation happened rapidly, but the beer was always in such high demand that it didn't normally sit too long. There would be a ton of fibers left in the brew, so it would be strained out through a sieve made from a tree gourd. Then, one part water was added to two parts beer, and voila! You have a delicious spit manioc beer drink that might give you hepatitis B. Harner noted that people asserted the beer tasted better when it was chewed by a pretty girl, so... Supposedly it tasted like an alcoholic buttermilk and could be quite refreshing. I'll just take Harner's word for it. A rough estimate given for the amount of beer consumed a day was an average of 1 to 4 gallons, or 4 to 15 liters, for an adult, and a half gallon, or 2 liters, for children. The drinking age was apparently somewhere around 9 years old. If I even had a Mountain Dew, or a Surge, back when that was a thing when I was a kid, I went totally nuts. Even today I'd be a mess if I had a half gallon of anything. But honestly, given the hard hand the Schwar were dealt, the fact that their houses had to be makeshift fortresses, and they were toughing it out in some of the most dangerous wilderness in the world, why not? Do I need to mention that 60% murder rate for males again? And speaking of murder rates, the male-to-female ratio among the Schwar was hugely disproportionate, so men would usually have two wives, or one, or three, in that order. This is largely because the male-to-female ratio was 2 to 1. Still, it was never difficult for a female to find a husband, 
Sometimes a man would ask the parents of an unborn child to reserve it for him if it was a girl. Other times, a prepubescent girl would be exchanged for a shotgun or some other gifts to her parents, then would be taken back by the man back to his house who intended to raise and then marry her once she hit puberty, which seems pretty creepy. This usually meant males were much older than their wives. From what I could tell, the young girl didn't have any say in any of this. When a woman was of post-pubescent age, it does seem that she had a say in who she married. Usually, an interested male would send a buddy of his over to the girl's house that he was interested in. His friend would then talk to the girl and her mother, and if she seemed interested, he'd go back and tell the interested suitor who would then go into the forest the next day and kill as many monkeys and birds as he could to impress her parents with his competence. When he returned, he gave the meat to the girl for her to cook. If the answer to the proposal was yes, then she sat down next to him and ate the meat with him. After that, they were just considered married. That's it. It's consummated that night, and there's no ceremony or hullabaloo about it. Sounds a lot cheaper than your average wedding today. And speaking of consummations, there seemed to be no real taboo about sex before marriage. It was never a surprise if a woman conceived right after marrying. And trigger warning, I'm going to tell you guys about infanticide, so fast forward about a minute if that's something you don't want to hear. It's rough. If a woman gave birth to a child from a man she did not intend to marry, then infanticide seemed to be the consequence. It was the same with deformed children, whether the child was born in or out of wedlock. Children with any deformities seemed to always be killed. This would be done by crushing the baby with a foot. Infanticide of undeformed babies or twins that were conceived in wedlock seems to never have occurred but it was a regular practice for illegitimate or deformed infants to be crushed to death. The Schwar knew the connection between sex and conceiving, so there were attempts at contraceptives. These all seemed to consist of magic or herbal concoctions. For example, if your sexual partner was a shaman, all you had to do was bring them a raw chicken egg, have them blow on it, and then have them swallow the egg while they held your head underwater in a stream. I wonder how much convincing it must have taken for that to catch on. Infidelity seemed to be fairly widespread, and there were some serious consequences for both men and women for it. If a man found out his wife cheated with another man who he wasn't related to, he'd get to slash the man's head with a machete on the forehead or the scalp. This usually wasn't fatal, it just stung for a while. If a man ran away before the head chopping, the aggravated party would kill the offender's father or one of his brothers or cousins in retribution. Even after the slashing, the guy who slept with your wife would still have to bring you a headdress made of toucan feathers to show he was sorry. After that, and a couple of years, all was generally forgiven. If your brother or cousin slept with your wife, you'd just slash their head with a toucan beak and forgo the machete altogether. Now, if a man caught his wife in the act of adultery, he was allowed to kill the other man and mutilate the woman's genitalia. Yeah. If they weren't caught in the act, nothing seemed to ever be done to the woman. Now, if a woman caught her husband in the act of adultery, she would slash his head with a machete and he would then have to go live at the house of one of his male relatives. And you only got one slash, so you'd really have to make it count. After about a month, when the woman cooled off, she'd send him a message, letting him know that he could come back. 
and if he didn't, she'd get to slash his head with machete a second time. If a man repeatedly committed adultery, then his wife would have the right to poison him, but then his brothers would try and poison her for revenge, and the whole thing would just end up a big mess with everyone slashed and poisoned. It'd be like Jersey Shore meets Desperate Housewives meets Game of Thrones. Infidelity was such a concern that some men would lay booby traps in the garden. This would consist of a twig snapping right up at crotch height to deter any males from snooping around the house while he was out hunting. And that, at the crotch height booby traps, is where I'm going to leave off part one on this series of the Schwar. There's just way too much that's way too interesting not to cover, so it became clear to me pretty quickly that this was going to be a two-parter. On the next episode, we're going to discuss the magic, shamanism, and beliefs of the Shuar and how that plays a part in their warfare. Then I'll be taking you on a head raid through the jungle and giving you that famous recipe for shrunken heads. If you have your own idea for an episode or just want to say hi, you can reach me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. All patrons get free stickers at any tier and access to the members-only feed. You can also get access to any bonus episodes I do. All proceeds go to making the show a better listening experience. You can also follow, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This really helps other people find the show. But above all, thank you for listening and for giving me and the show a chance. We've covered a lot in this episode, and the next is going to be even wilder. If you like this episode, you're definitely not going to want to miss the next one. So stay tuned. The Schwar will be waiting for you next time. I've been your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and until we meet again, go make some history.